Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of this podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we like to call it, the PIN podcast. In this series, trainees and PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Our interviewers today include myself, I am Elizabeth, a PhD student. Hi, I'm Nidhi and I'm a research assistant. And today we are really happy to have uh, as a guest our very own PIN alum, Heather Danton, who is currently the project director for USAID Advancing Nutrition, providing technical support to and implementation of nutrition interventions across sectors and disciplines for USAID and its partners. She has over 30 years of experience in Asia, Africa, and Latin America in the food security and livelihoods specializing in design, implementation, monitor, and evaluation of programs that integrate economic growth and agriculture with nutrition. So welcome to the PIN podcast, Heather, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So actually, to get us, to get us started to warm us up, what about if you tell us a little bit more about your career trajectory, how do you got to where you are and, you know, starting from your bachelor in biology from Stanford and then your master's degree at Cornell University? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I was pre-med at Stanford. Um, I had a really great high school biology teacher. And so she, you know, sent many people out into the world thinking they wanted to be doctors. Um, and my sister actually became one. And I did not because I wound up taking some time off my junior year. Um, and I had the opportunity through a volunteer program called Volunteers in Asia to go to Indonesia, where I taught English as a second language. It had nothing to do with biology, but um, it was a really um, life-changing experience in the sense that it really opened my eyes to the importance of good nutrition. Um, this year, what year was this? This was in 1978. So you can imagine malnutrition was quite high in Indonesia at that time. I also really just fell in love with agriculture and botany, actually, as well. And so I completely changed my mind, came back to Stanford, finished my degree, and took a year uh, to work in an agricultural research center in South Florida while I applied to med school and to graduate school. And like, I was kind of going like, oh, which way do I go? And I wound up coming up to Cornell for vegetable crops. At the time, there was a department for vegetable crops. And I really wanted to focus on healthy foods and um, link that to nutrition. So I have a little minor in nutrition with a big focus on just learning about core ag techniques. And at that time, they were quite different. But I didn't feel comfortable, you know, launching myself into an international development career, which was my goal if I didn't know anything about the things that I was seeing on the ground, um, working with farmers and agricultural researchers and that sort of thing around the world. So that was my motivation um, when I was at Cornell was to just at least become conversant. Um, from there, I um, wound up walking into a really amazing opportunity uh, with Rodale Research Center. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're a publishing company, and they, at the time, they were one of the few places that was doing organic gardening and low-input farming research. So I was working at a low-input farming research center in Pennsylvania, but the main reason they hired me was to send me to Tanzania. They had just been asked by, the, at that time, President Nereri, a long time ago, to train their agricultural research 
cadre in low input farming methods. It was a very difficult time in Tanzania. Nobody from Rodale really wanted to go back there. And so they hired me to go. So I got a chance to move to Tanzania and start this training program. But unfortunately, uh, USAID that was funding it pulled out all assistance to Tanzania because of politics. Hariri was a socialist. <laughs> so um, anyway, long, long history. That left me uh, back at the research center in Pennsylvania, still wanting to do international work. So I applied for an internship at Save the Children and wound up being at Save the Children and was basically writing my own job description for the next eight years. And so I became Save the Children's first and maybe only <laughs> agricultural advisor um, for Africa. And so I wound up living in Africa and pretty much doing the rounds of all of the countries where Save the Children had programs to create stronger linkages for sharing better practice across the, the countries where we were working, but mostly to figure out whether or not we were using the best practices for sharing information and learning from, from the various ways that, you know, agricultural extension was informing, you know, income and to some extent nutrition, that link to nutrition was not very strong at that point. But um, I was the one that was trying to like try and make these connections between our teams. Um, so it was a great opportunity, very fun. And something that unfortunately these days is not something that a graduate student would be able to do, you know, with only two or three years experience. Only in the sense that I think that a lot of the technology, of course, now makes all of that obsolete. Um, in those days, there was no way to communicate without actually moving physically from country to country in terms of really delving into the details of the how. So it was a great opportunity. From there, I took a leave from international development for a while for a number of reasons, but I wound up being here in the United States and worked for the state of Massachusetts doing economic development for a while, um, city of Taunton, where I live now in Massachusetts doing economic development. But I also then worked for a nonprofit that does small business lending under the Small Business Administration. So I basically worked as a banker for about five years doing small business lending. Um, and applying some of the small business loan approaches from the developing world here in the United States um, in southeastern Massachusetts. In the meantime, I started consulting again um, with Save the Children and others, and they had me traveling, you know, overseas and helping with proposal development and um, supervision of and management of projects. So I was kind of busy for a while, sort of like running three jobs at once um, as a consultant. <laughs> um, and eventually Save the Children talked me into coming back. So I came back to Save the Children, worked for them for another seven years until I got so burnt out that I had to leave again. <laughs> and I wound up joining JSI um, on the spring project, which I think many of you know. I was the director for the agriculture nutrition linkages work that was done under spring, which sort of followed on from the 2013 Lancet series that talked a lot about the nutrition sensitive components of programming, um, like really pulling out from the UNICEF framework, the nutrition sensitive areas. So that was really a great position for, we were in a great position at that time. The timing was perfect to be able to take what was in the Lancet and really work with USAID and a number of implementing partners 
to test how we might go about doing nutrition sensitive agriculture. So my background was pretty well suited for it, but I mostly had a great team um, that was able to kind of delve pretty deeply into what was happening in a number of USAID's focus countries for nutrition. So, um, and from there, I wound up in my current position, which is project director. So overseeing the entire project on advancing nutrition, which is a very different project from spring, but still um, really pretty great. Uh, we've, we've really accomplished a lot. It's uh, very large and diverse and complex, but yeah, a lot, of, a lot of progress has been made in the last 10 years around nutrition. So sorry, that's kind of long, wow. but I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. Like it's, it's really a lot of steps into like, you know, from starting with med school or thinking about med school and then now in this uh, huge project for sort of integrating and expanding nutrition. And actually it's a great segue because the next question is to tell us a bit more, like how is your day-to-day, like a normal day in your life and perhaps how different it is from all the time that you that you spend in the field at the beginning of your career, and then you know those bite those experiences as a banker uh, in the U.S. So I will say that um, I can't remember my my mother once told me this. <laughs> my mother is a very wise person. She said, you know, um, as you get older, you wind up taking on more and more positions that you can make. You have to make a choice about. You either choose to stay someplace that you're really comfortable or you choose to make yourself uncomfortable. So I'm the kind of person that chooses to make myself uncomfortable. And this position right now is not at all technical. I mean, I am 100% a manager, manager and leader of a lot of people. (laughs) So I'm managing people more than I am managing technical leadership. Um, So I wish I was sort of being the thought leader, but I'm I'm actually the people leader in my current position. And it's not a place that I have a lot of experience. When I was working overseas, yes, I was leading large teams, but you have very much of a focus. You know, you've got a particular plan, a work plan that, you know, takes you from start to finish. This project, it's that times 100 you know, we've got eight different technical areas that we're working in just with our, our money from USAID Washington. We have 12 countries. Each of those countries has its own scope of work, its own results framework that it's aiming towards, its own deadlines. And all of this as, as a contract, USAID Advancing Nutrition, has to be timely, of high quality, relevant, and sustainable. You know, we need to create things that people will continue to use and to share them in a way that is also not only targeted to the people that will use it, but will continue to be able to be accessed. So all of this is like under me. And I'm the kind of person that goes like, oh, I really want to understand this point. And in this role, I can't do that. Um, In this role, I'm just like floating above and going like, I've got all these great people under me. They are super smart. They're really good at what they do. And I know and trust that they are doing a great job. And when I see the final products, which I see all of them, I'm going like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we've actually produced this. This is amazing. <laughs> um, because normally, you know, if I was managing it in the field myself, I would have I would have been in, engaged every single day with it. So it's really a different position for me. Um, and it's taken a lot of learning. 
on my part. And that way is how I'm un, a little bit uncomfortable. But um, same thing with the, you know, like going back to my decision to be a banker. Like I'm not trained as a banker, but I trained myself and took a lot of classes and got certified and all that sort of thing. So it's just kind of who I am. Yeah, thank you for sharing all this. It's really interesting to kind of get an insight on how an education or training in nutrition can also be used for like a managerial position. And you mentioned something about being a person who chooses uncomfortable situations when you have an option to be in more comfortable situations. So going more towards that, and since you're, you are working in international nutrition and you will have to travel a lot or you might have traveled a lot, in your past positions and for your current position. So how often do you manage that? How uncomfortable do you find it sometimes? Could you please tell us more about how you balance work, comfort, and personal life? Yeah, so that's changed a lot over the years, as you might imagine. Um, as a young professional, travel was often quite uncomfortable and I've done the full gamut. I, in fact, I just got back from Tanzania on this project as a director, I haven't traveled nearly as much as I have in other places because I'm not the one doing the direct work. So on this project, I, I've traveled only three times to Mozambique to help with the survey, the original survey to inform the scope of work. And then last year, I was in Ghana to help orient a new chief of party to our program and sort of like introduce our work to the USAID mission. And then this Tanzania trip was to attend our closeout workshop, which was fabulous. It was, you know, with government, like high level government officials, we've really done a lot to promote multi-sexual nutrition policy and programming through um, a range of ministries, departments and agencies. So it was, it was really fun, but you know, in that situation, I'm staying in a nice hotel and traveling or, you know, like flying from Dar es Salaam to Dodoma. When I lived in Tanzania back in 1984, I can tell you, I didn't fly anywhere. <laughs> we were driving in some place, driving places with no roads. Um, when I lived in Sudan, I remember the first time I went from Dar es Salaam out to Umrawaba where I was living and going like, wait a minute, there are no roads here. You're just like driving through the desert, nothing in sight. Now there's a big super highway that goes out to Umrawaba. So um, things have really changed a lot as does sort of that, so that comfort level of like thinking, oh, you know, tonight I'm going to be sleeping in a hut someplace, which happened, happened a lot in my early career, very rarely happens, you know, staying in sort of like, even though sometimes some of the little regional hotels, I'd almost rather be in a hut, but um, anyway, none of that bothers me. It's like, okay, so you don't, you can't wash your hair for four days. Of course, maybe, I, maybe that's why I still now have short hair, but um, <laughs> But that kind of stuff you just kind of get used to. But some people just don't. I When my son was small, I took him with me several times. Like he went to Ethiopia with me several times and he never really has had the international development bug since then. <laughs> um, he just, you know, you choose to do it or not do it. But I think that the role that we play in development needs to be much more facilitative. And the way that we travel and the roles that we play when we travel have really shifted. When I was younger, I was doing a lot of the work. I was like in the field, you know, helping train data collectors and all that sort of stuff. Now we hire people that are well-educated from the universities and they're doing that training. And we might be there just sort of like 
doing a little bit of the raw raw, but also helping with, you know, quality checks on data collection and that sort of thing. So our roles have really shifted. Um, and I think for the better, because what I'm seeing is just so much growth in capacity within the countries that we're working, you know, in, in all aspects of nutrition, um, both nutrition specific and nutrition sensitive, and not that there's still not plenty to do. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in my talk, but I think that for me as a, as a, especially a, an American woman, the role that I see myself playing in development now is very different from the way I saw my role when I was in my 20s and early 30s. Thanks for sharing all this. It was really insightful to hear about your travel experience. And I was just curious, um, what is the main takeaway that you have gained so far from your career in international nutrition and traveling from the United States, which is a first world country to Tanzania, Ethiopia, and like living in a hut, um, what's the main takeaway? The main takeaway, um, you know, development is about people. And I think the main takeaway is that I don't know as one person, one individual, that the influence that I have as a development professional or that we have as a development industry is so, is so much about sort of like improving tools and all of that sort of thing. It's actually about changing the lives of individuals who become that network of professionals and go on to share what they learned from you or learned from their professor or learned from their experience. And they take that more broadly. So, you know, like my time living in a hut I was doing that, you know, as we were doing data collection. Um, I mean, I did it a lot of places, but you know, you're you're out there and you're in the field for three weeks, you know, collecting data and doing surveys. And what comes out of that is all of those people who were participating in one role or another were touched, their lives were touched by that. They learned something from it, they either positive or negative. <laughs> Um, and they take that experience with them in their lives and touch more lives and more lives and more lives. Um, is that changing nutrition? In some ways, yes. Is it changing new thing, you know, behaviors in the way that we, you know, so tightly study now around social and behavior change? It contributes. I wouldn't say it's the thing that changes it, but all of these things add up and um, contribute over time to changes in behavior. Um, changes in skill sets, changes in um, perceptions and outlooks. Um, and and it's it's that sort of international exchange that we can't lose. That is the, that's what is important for development. And when I say exchange, it goes both ways. I, this was not about me taking anything there. This was about me being a, a player or being able to have the opportunity to learn from, so many people, so many people. And I brought that back here. When I was a banker, I was able to bring experiences from doing small business lending in Bangladesh. I was able to bring that back and, you know, like give small microloans to small businesses on Cape Cod. I know it sounds silly, but, you know, like job creation and economic growth, they're sort of, sort of like some things that we know about it and they're global. It's global. So I, I think the takeaway is you've got to be a positive global actor. I mean, it's, it's, it's about how we work in, in the nutrition field. So I think this is 
this is very useful and interesting to us. And, and actually, leads for this for the next question I have. And I'm, you mentioned it before how the role in global development or in nutrition and development has shifted, at least internationally, from like earlier in your career and now, which I think we can all see a bit of that even in our training journey. And so I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that change and perhaps what if there were any skills during your training, although I, I think you've been always in the learning journey, but like what were the <laughs> things uh, that, you know, like skills or perspectives that has helped you through your career, including in this important shift and I think what is to come, right? Because maybe a lot of more of a lot more changes are happening at the international development and nutrition agenda. So my time at, at Cornell actually was very, very important to my career. I, I will say that. First of all, it gave me an understanding of inquiry and you know, okay, research sort of, you know, okay, like, what do we mean by research? And, you know, what's a protocol? And how do you, you know, how do you choose a sample size? And all that, like, that's a great, great. And I don't have to be an expert in that anymore. I can work with the team. And, you know, I can have the best research leaders that I need, and I can pull them from all different places. But at Cornell, I was able to understand how important it is to ask the right question, to be able to look around and make sure you take the time to look around and talk to people and have an understanding before you just like bound in and say like, we need to know this. And, and I learned that at Cornell because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my research itself, you know, is not, not exactly a straight line. Some of the questions that I had that I thought I had about nutrition I wasn't asking the right question and it took me a while to like kind of move around and find the right place for myself. And I've always taken that with me really through the rest of my career, um, understanding that learning starts with the right question. And it's not always the question that you think you want to ask. So that's one of the biggest things. The other thing that I really got from Cornell was an ability to leverage networks. <laughs> I'm not automatically an outgoing person. I recognize, however, and I recognize this from my time at Cornell, more so even than Stanford. I think at Stanford, I was too young. I was even still too young at Cornell, but Cornell as a graduate student, you really had so many opportunities to understand how important people's knowledge is to the, the direction that you go. Uh, you don't have to repeat the work of so many other brilliant minds. You can take those minds with you through a network. And uh, Cornell is really where I first recognized the importance of a network. And I won't see, say that I've like stayed in touch with everybody, <laughs> uh, but I, every place I go, I meet people who have benefited, either they went to Cornell or they did a training program at Cornell and I sort of automatically have a sense of like, oh, in that case, we've got this thing that we that we share. And and that goes a long way, especially when you're kind of in a new place, trying to figure out whether or not you need to influence a direction that research or questioning or programming is going. It always helps if you've got somebody like that you can kind of put your arm around and go like, so how would we have done this at Cornell? You know, that kind of stuff. It, it really does make a difference. 
So I, I think the journey for nutrition sort of lies with the, the way that we can bring acad- academia closer and closer and closer to implementation being able to get those questions that are being asked or need to be asked on the ground and bring a Cornell or a Stanford or whoever to together with those questions to really like bring research and implementation uh, to, to, to walk side by side is the, the kind of magic that early on in my career was not common. I mean, evidence-based, we didn't use that word in my, in my early career. Evidence, the evidence base was like, okay, you would maybe read a few papers and stuff, but they were kind of off base from the reality of what I was seeing on the ground. I'm working with all these small farmers who, you know, you're just trying to get them to answer your questions. Like, I don't understand why you're not growing things in rows. Could you explain that to me? Um, and <laughs> so like, we were really far apart and over the years, we've been coming closer and closer and closer together. And that's really where the magic happens because you've got evidence being generated in response to the key questions that need to be asked. Yeah. Cornell certainly is a great place. Like it has a great learning environment in terms of international nutrition and evidence-based research. And we need to wrap up the podcast soon and we just have a few more questions. But before we let you go, could you please share some facilitators which help you keep motivated to do your job in nutrition and research and management and also some advice for current trainees in international nutrition? Sure. So my motivators are to do plenty of things that are not work. <laughs> um, I... Uh, I'm very physically active. Um, I when I took time off after I left Save the Children the second time, I got trained as a Pilates instructor. So I also teach Pilates in my free time. <laughs> um, I taught last night, and I think that you know keeping a diverse set of interests is the thing that keeps me going. And I apply my nutrition work everywhere I go. Um, I apply it with my Pilates clients. I apply it in my daily life. And, and at the same time, I take a lot of my lessons from daily life into my work. So I think that's the thing that keeps me motivated. Um, it's also, I mean, I, there's still so much to be accomplished. Um, and we've come so far and it's been really fun to see those changes. So that also keeps me really motivated. I, I never get tired of seeing progress. <laughs> So um, that's the one thing. And in terms of advice for young professionals, I mean, I've got a lot. I've got a lot of young professionals on my team, about 20 of them who are either just having just finished master's degree and in some cases just finished bachelor's degrees. And I think my main advice is to never say no. If you see an opportunity, raise your hand and be the one that gets selected to maybe a you know, sounds like it's going to be a little a bit of drudgery. I mean, I spent an entire year as an intern at Save the Children making photocopies for people. But I was reading the things that I was photocopying <laughs> and I was making connections with the work. And, you know, when somebody, when they came around and said, like, who wants to go to Ethiopia and help with this emergency? I raised my hand, you know? And so I was the one that got to travel. So don't ever say no. <laughs> Be there and position yourself um, to uh, maybe take on a little bit of extra work, but it's those connections that come from saying yes 
that really do launch your career. So I don't know if that's enough. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, I think I have had a very fun time talking to you in this podcast and we are very sad to see you go. But just one last question or two questions, actually. And this is kind of a fun tradition we have uh, in this podcast. Could you please share what you like the most about your work and your least favorite part about your work? <laughs> um, the part I like the most about my work is getting to work with so many really amazing people. Every single day, I have the honor of being in meetings, reading the results of work done by just incredibly smart and motivated and dedicated people. And that's been true throughout most of my career. I don't know what it is about the sort of food security and nutrition field, but I am just in awe of the talent that I get to work with every single day. So that's really what I love the most. And that talent, by the way, sits everywhere. It's not just on my team. It's the people I'm working with among our partners and with USAID and in the field. I mean, I was just out in Tanzania with two really amazing women who have changed the direction of multisexual nutrition policy in Tanzania. And what an honor that is. So that's the thing that I love the most. The thing I like the least, I think, is probably meeting time. Uh, and especially since we've now gone into this Zoom world, it does get a little bit exhausting just going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And sometimes I think, gosh, if we were back in the office, it might be able to be that you could do this, you know, this 30 minutes that you spent on Zoom, you probably could have done five minutes while you were both grabbing water, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I think that's probably the part that I like the least. Well, I mean, this is actually the end of this episode. And for everyone else who is also tired of so many Zoom meetings, you can always take a bit of a refreshment pause listening to our episode, PIN Podcast, remember? And, and thank you so much, Heather, for sharing all of your career trajectory and advice with us. I think this was very interesting and, and motivational for us. I think this hopefully will bring us a little bit closer to understand what, what lays in the future for nutrition and development. And well, thank you all to our listeners on this podcast and stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health.